With kids around, me time runs out fast. Don't waste valuable child-free minutes on a drink run. Instead, get Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly has the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Get date night rolling before your parents bring him back. How about a living room slip and paint? They'll never know you stole their crayons. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Our guest today on The Enemies List is John De La Volpe. John is a public opinion expert. He understands the political, emotional, and social terrain of the country so, so well, especially with an insight into the rising generation uh, that's reshaping American political life, Gen Z. He's got a great new book. It's uh, not quite new, but the paperback version is new uh, with an expanded analysis of 2022. It's called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. And I, I can say before we start, we saw in our polling at the Lincoln Project in the fall of 22, an absolutely unexpected surge in Gen Z activism and engagement in the broad fight in this country. And, and you called it. You called it dead to rights. And I want to talk about that a little bit today and talk about not only how Gen Z is going to play in the 2024 election, but also to get your broader take on the on the political landscape of the country as it stands right now. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. So with that, John Della Volpe, welcome to The Enemies List. And I'll start with asking you, where do you see the political winds blowing right now in the country? Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much, Rick. I think the, the word or phrase that's most commonly used is kind of unmoored that people feel people feel kind of concerned that they're kind of losing kind of their own personal kind of mooring, not really sure what the future might hold for them. And I also think mm -hmm. that applies mm -hmm. to American institutions. And I think that, you know, it's a dangerous place, right? It's a dangerous place because that's where, um, you know, uh, we, we have opportunity for cynicism to grow. And on the issues that I care about specifically, younger Americans, that's never a good thing because that typically leads to less voting, maybe more volunteerism, but less less voting in elections. So that's where I, I think things are. Tell us a little bit about the impact again of Gen Z voters in the 22 election cycle, because it was, it was uh, maybe you weren't surprised, but an awful lot of American political types were shocked to see how passionate they came out um, and and they defied a stereotype of younger voters, which is that younger voters don't vote. Well, that's a stereotype that was accurate for the most of the last 50 years, Rick, right? But when the youth vote kind of transitioned from mostly millennial to millennial with some Gen Z, also happened to coincide, as you know, with the election of Trump in 2016, um, we saw kind of a, a transformation in, in youth participation. So give you just a kind of a, a brief background around this from the 80s to 90s to 2000s when Gen Xers are 
or millenn- baby boomers, Gen Xers and, and, and millennials were young when they were 18 to 29. They voted at roughly half the level, Rick, of Gen Z today. The average turnout in a midterm election was in the teens, right? Mm. In 2018, it was twice that. It was in the mid-30s. 2020, the presidential broke all records again. And in 2022, it played a significant role specifically in the, in the battleground states. And um, I think that most of the punditry, as you know, was predicting a red wave, right? Uh, that absolutely. was accurate. But that was accurate if you're only counting people over the age of 45, right? But when you factor in Gen Z and millennials, they blunted that red wave and, um, and were without question responsible for the, uh, you know, kind of above all expectations, I think, um, you know, results that Democrats have. Right. And and I think, you know, I, I wrote in my last book, which when I was writing it in the spring of 19, it was accurate to say that that young voters typically were, were not that, that, that the that the economic investment in young voters had not ever paid off, that nobody had ever quite gotten them to turn out. And weirdly, like when Dukakis and Bush had some of the highest youth voter turnout, if there's something wrong with all the metrics of it. And I think that that's something that has kind of shocked a lot of people. And, and you know, right when I wrote it, to, it totally upended. We don't get many shocks like that in the American political system, do we? We don't. And, you know, the whole idea of the youth vote being, as you said, being a kind of a wise economic investment from campaigns, you know, um, didn't exist when I started this project. I started the project, <laughs> you know, at Harvard 22 years ago when there was no difference between the way a young person voted. Well, I mean, there was no partisan gap. You were a young person in 2000 was just as likely to vote for George Bush as Al Gore. In right. fact, the older you were, you were slightly more likely to vote Democrat in that election. So this like the, the, the increasing participation and the, 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 the gaping part, partisan gap is a relatively new phenomenon. And as you said, um, there's not a lot of data to indicate what was coming, but thankfully, you know, we've had 20 years of trends and, um, you know, but more important, I think, Rick, is, is we need to look beyond, you know, um, the horse race. We need to look beyond uh, what the number one issue is. And we need to understand, I think, and speak to people and, and listen to kind of the focus groups and qualitative. And when you do that, I think you appreciate the fact that, you know, the recession is important, of course, and it hurts a lot of people, but, Recessions come, recessions go. Inflation comes, inflation goes. But what doesn't necessarily change, perhaps for decades, is a woman's right to decide what she wants to do kind of with her own reproductive health, right? Mm-hmm. What may not change is, is the sense that the, the, you know, the, the kind of the climate is, is, is in a spiraling, in some cases, kind of out of control. The fact of basic rights, access to a quality education where you don't have to fear for your safety. Those are things that this generation of young voters finds just far more important than whatever the economic wins are of a particular moment. It's interesting because, you know, the the fact that that the Republican plan over a 50-year window to overturn Roe versus Wade, and it was a 50-year plan as everybody sort of like finally woke up and realized, um, the dog caught the car, and I have never seen shifts in the polling like I did in 22 uh, as Dobbs started to sink into people and as some of these Republican state legislatures started to go with the six-week abortion bans and criminalizing you know, doctors and, and all the things. And, and 
I say this not from a pro-choice, pro-life perspective, but just from a raw politics perspective. I mean, I don't think you can unwind this given the dynamics in the country for the Republicans. I think they've got a probably a multi-decade problem now with three cohorts of voters, the millennials, and a lot of the X's too, but the millennials, the Z's, and the upcoming A's are going to grow up in this environment where you've got places like Texas where if a woman gets an abortion, people can snitch on her and get a financial reward. And the momentum in the states that are still dominated by Republican state legislatures is so powerful with redistricting and all the other factors, they're not going to stop. They're going to keep pushing the, the, the Dobbs decision as far as they can to ensure that they get as much as they can before this demographic tidal wave comes and just whacks the hell out of them. That's right. They're taking essentially kind of everything that they can. They're taking every single thing that they can, um, realizing, as you said, this tidal wave is on a national basis is going to be about 40% of the upcoming electorate in 24, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, 40% will be millennials or Gen Z. Rick, and we talk about the country being divided 50-50, and of course it is. But I think a more accurate way to think about this is divided, it's like two-thirds, one-third, based upon what, you know, your age, right? And if you're kind of, you know, 45 or so or younger, roughly the values, two-thirds of, of those Americans, okay, hold those a, a solid set of values that prioritize, like you said, a woman's, you know, having her, her, her autonomy over her reproductive rights as one example. And that's something that, you know, as you said, the Republicans have been investing in this for essentially kind of, you know, our lifetimes and Democrats have a lot of catching up to do on local level. Oh, for sure. One of the fascinating schisms here too is obviously the Kansas example. And, and frankly, it's where I fall too. I don't want government intervening in a whole host of personal individual decisions. I don't want government to tell me what I can do and not do as a sort of small L, not weird type libertarian. I want government out of it. I mean, this is, I used to get in trouble all the time. I had Rush Limbaugh yell at me one time for two days on the air because back in the mid 2000s, I I made this argument. I said, guys, I've been in favor of gay marriage for a long time because it's nobody's business on the government. Who gets married to who if they're consenting adults? And I was called a degenerate and a pervert and all that other crap. And it's just like, I don't get it. You know, uh, I mean, you know, th- this this is a this is a there is a weird underpinning here of even Republican leaning or more conservative or libertarian leaning younger voters. That I think is where some of them are coming in at it from. And that's that's like a triple whammy now on on the Republican Party that is based around the evangelical social conservatism, Christianity, uh, Christian nationalism side of the equation. Well, and and the other aspect, I I completely agree, but the other aspect too is when you ask a young person why they vote, um, Mm -hmm. more times than not, the the, the reason that they give you is for somebody else. They're they're showing their their empathy. It's for the, the rights of an LGBTQ member of their community who might feel under attack, right? It might be for a woman who lives in Texas who doesn't have the right to choose anymore. So the idea of of this kind of radical empathy is something that kind of connects this generation. And when over a half, over a half feel under attack in some significant way, that's kind of that response. They're kind of being very, very protective um, of, of each other. And that's the thing I think that's not quite as understood as it will be in, in future elections is the role that has Trump had in shaping the modern Democratic Party. 
not just the modern Republican Party. Absolutely. Right? A generation come of age in thinking about what their values were as a reflection of what they're seeing in our national politics. And the choices have been very, very clear, very, very clear for the last several years. I, I think that's right. And because of the way that, that Trump reset a lot of American politics left and right, there's not the same generational, you know, cohort shift as you see people getting older, getting more conservative so far in the, and the data is not extraordinarily dense yet, but the millennials are not as moving to the right as quickly as the Gen X types do. And I was, I was born the day before Kennedy was killed. So I'm like the cusp of the boomer X window. So I kind of get both windows there, but yeah, the Gen X folks moved to become much more conservative. I mean, they, 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 they did what they, they did historically what happens, silent, boomer, X, they all shifted right. But the millennials don't seem to be shifting much and the Gen, Gen Zs don't seem to be shifting at all. No. Or in, in the fact, other direction. When, when I looked, um, I, I compared the, the we, we have a typology at Harvard, we have a dozen or so questions. And, um, right. and when I look at the responses this year compared to four years ago and 10 years ago, on every single metric, on every single metric, there is a net shift to the more progressive side of that particular issues. In some cases, I think in a majority of the cases of my 12 or 14, there's a double digit increase, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. progressive values. Now, what I think is confusing to some people is there is a difference between people holding and, and developing and maintaining progressive values and whether or not they choose to vote for Democrat or choose to vote at all. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think that millennials generally still hold on to those progressive values, though we see that the votes of the the, ter- the votes of folks in their 30s will be supporting Democrats by maybe eight, nine, 10, 12 points, not the 30 points that younger people did during the Obama years. But I think that's just mm-hmm. a more complex calculation than people give it credit for. It's not that they're becoming more conservative, more Republican. I just think it's a different cohort participating today than when they were younger. You know, you mentioned how, you know, income, economic and income issues used to be really significant drivers. You used to be able to make more solid electoral predictions based on economic conditions and circumstances than you can now. Now, they still, it's still a big, a big part of the gravity well of, of every election. But um, what is it economically driving um, younger voters right now. I mean, they, they're they the children of the 2008 crisis. They are the children of a cataclysmic level of college loan debt. And we can right. talk about how you, I mean, the, the, I have mixed feelings about a lot of the, the solutions to the college loan debt situation. But um, what is it driving them right now? And how is that expressing itself with, with Gen Z voters and younger voters in the at, at how it's shaping their political character, this economic, this weird high-low economy we've been in for like twenty-five years now. I, I think to start, I think you started the right right place, which is the first meaningful memory that so many members of Gen Z had was of the economic crisis. Right, as a four, five, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight-year-old, seeing kind of the effect of when. 80% of American families lose 20% of their net wealth, right? And the real economic pain and instability that created and that continued, um, and it continues to shape, I think, how they think about kind of their own lives and what success is. And mm-hmm. I think that it's less about jobs. And this is something that I think is is difficult for 
for a kind of elected officials today to understand. It's not just about having record job creation. It's about having ha- having a job where you don't need to like search on the back pages of the internet to find three random roommates to afford an apartment in nearly any city right. in America, right? It's the idea of of, 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 of basically kind of the, co- the cost of living and having that stability. More than anything, what young people want, and this is how it t- kind of ties into the college college, you know, debt is they want to be independent financially. You know, they want to, doesn't need mean to be independently wealthy, but they want to be independent. And that is just so incredibly difficult um, for, for this generation. So I think that's kind of one part of it. But I also think that they, I think, you know, matured much quicker than a lot of young people did because of COVID and seeing what's really important in life, right? Mm, so mm-hmm. I, I, I think that they're willing, that's a, they're willing to sacrifice some economic gain, you know, in order to kind of live what they would call their kind of their best life in a place where they can learn, be mentored, have a contrib- make a contribution to the organization that they're working for in, in the community kind of in, in, in general. I think they appreciate the fact that the, that the American dream that like their parents or their grandparents had access, to, as, had access to may not be there for them. Everybody's got a morning ritual. I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value, so this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle of the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. So therefore, they're in the process of, I think, of recreating their own version of that dream. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a... Uh, a conversation I hear a lot about with that generation is like, we don't have we 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 have no hope of buying a home. The market mm. has priced us out. We have no hope of being able to raise a family, even if we want kids. We can't afford to do it. And it is an interesting point because the government in America for for my entire political career was primarily focused on winning the votes of old people, of seniors, That's right. of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. You know, at the top of the at the top of the political agenda, though, that was the third rail. Then, I almost wonder if there's some sort of third rail emerging with with millennials and Gen Z and Gen A, because they're hard to believe the Gen A's are 22 years old now, right? They're getting there. They're getting uh, there. Yeah, they're, they're coming into they're coming into their into their majority here. And um, but is there some sort of third rail you see emerging? With younger voters, it's going to end up being the equivalent of like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid were back in the in the in the window of of you know where I came up in politics, where it was all about like how are we going to deal with the baby boomers and the silent generation types who are you know greatest generation, all that stuff. 
I think the I, I, I think the, the the one way in which I would characterize that third rail today is: Are you for expanding or, or taking away basic rights? Okay, and what a young person, a millennial, a Gen Z, or Gen Alpha are, are going to include in basic rights is access if you work hard to shelter, to a house. And Rick, not only do young people question whether they could afford to buy a house, I was incredibly surprised, if not shocked, at the last the 45th wave of the Harvard poll when a full third of 18 mm-hmm. to 29 year olds said that um, they could see themselves homeless one day. A third. A third. A third, a third of young people. Wow. We're talking about a generation of 75 million people. Okay. Wow. And, and if you're a person of color, it's close to 50%. 70% say homelessness could happen to anybody. Okay. But when I talk about unmooring, when I talk about instability, this is this is core to you know what is happening, what's going on in the heads. So you know, think about a twenty-eight year old today, twenty-five year old. Okay, mm-hmm. they're 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 actively thinking when they walk into a movie, like many of us, a movie theater, a college classroom, a shopping mall, thinking about fears of of, of gun violence, right, mass shootings. They're thinking about mm-hmm. you know losing a job or some you know some some some. Some other uh, kind of catastrophe of some kind, you know, potentially losing their home, concerns about climate. They have all these anxieties. Mm-hmm. That's why 50% of this generation indicates that several days in the last two weeks, they felt, you know, they, they felt hopeless or, or depressed in some way. Now, um, again, I think this kind of ties into this, this concern about eroding basic rights clean air, clean water, education, safety, you know, um, healthcare, mental healthcare. That's the third. That's the third rail. And Rick, what the problem with the Republican Party is today? They don't even acknowledge that these are challenges that exist, right? They don't even acknowledge right. that these problems are mm-hmm. even there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party fought two enormous, really, really consequential battles at the at the meta level in the last fifty years, and part of it was to placate or empower, depending on where you're at, the social conservatives. And abortion was their number one issue there. They lost temporarily, they thought, the battle over gay marriage. Now they're going to try to unwind that. Do you think they're going to learn any lessons off of how badly the Dobbs decision blew back on them? Because I can tell you right now, they're going to try to unroll gay marriage in the next legislative cycles in most states, where most Republican-controlled states. They're going to try to do it. Mm-hmm. They're going to try mm-hmm. to undo gay adoption in Florida. I've, I've spoken to a legislator, who a Republican legislator, mm-hmm. by the way, who reached out to me and said, DeSantis wants this next year. He wants to undo gay adoption and gay marriage in Florida. It's, it's horrifying. And, and the people that are, that are driving it, they have all these negative things. Do you think they're going to learn a lesson? I mean, unless it's just you know, the, the lesson that they get destroyed after they try it. I think uh, clearly not. You know, look at I mean, look at just use DeSantis as 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 the current case study, right? Since since he essentially kind of you know put a put a, put a, you know became kind of a, a national figure earlier this year mm-hmm. with his book launch and other things, you know, um, his his name ID has gone up by five points and his unfavorable has gone up by thirteen points. Right. right. You know, right. <laughs> to know him is to hate him. <laughs> to, right. You know, he was he was trailing by five Trump in February on a national, you know, among just Repu- among Republicans, he's trailing by five. Now he's trailing by 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 six times that number 
is trailing by 30 points, right? Mm-hmm. On a, among Republicans on a national basis. So I, I think that if Republicans can continue that pathway that you talked about by, by, rest, by restricting what, again, a couple generations, three generations, believe is kind of basic libertarian, in some cases, rights, um, they're on their, on their way to very quickly becoming not a national, but a regional party. You could see them becoming that rump party of uh, of an, a southeastern and somewhat midwestern arc, because weirdly, and I don't know if you've seen this, but like west of the Rockies, even conservatives on the on the on the abortion question are a little bit like, okay, a little too far. Those mm-hmm. those people are much more about like an individual liberty space than sure. southern southeastern Christian nationalists and social conservatives are. So in the in the course of this election, we have to put it as bluntly as we can, two old guys running. Right. We've got the um the the grandfatherly, the sort of avuncular, friendly older Joe Biden and the crazy uncle Donald Trump. Now, a lot of Trump's character is baked in the cake with these voters already, we know. But how much of a burden is Biden's age with this cohort? Uh, it's, you know, half of, I just I looked at some polling over the weekend, and, and half of this generation say it, it doesn't matter so much. Okay. So mm-hmm. uh, I think, but I, I think there's a, a greater set of issues than, than just his age. Honestly, and and I've never been one. Although I, I I spend a lot of my time focused on younger voters, I've never been one to see the strong correlation between younger voters supporting younger candidates. Remember, Bernie Sanders is probably still among the most favored, mm-hmm. you know, um, and popular Democrats, you know, among <laughs> among young people, right? So, um, and he's actually old and fine, right? I think it's bigger than um, a personal characteristic like age, and it's more about um, whether or not. The White House and the administration, the campaign can can effectively communicate the difference that 2020 made in in in, in the lives of young Americans and in the, the course of the country. Rick, what um, the reason that I was that I was optimistic about a big youth turnout in 2018 and 2020 is younger people felt a real sense of agency. They understood because of Trump largely and because of some mm-hmm. other factors like the March for Our Lives, that politics mattered, that it made a tangible difference if you engage or not. And, and, and younger people, for a variety of reasons, including for their own mental health, have kind of checked out. They're not watching the news as closely as they were even a few years ago. And I, okay. think, if the communi- and I think if the campaign reminds them of what they did together, okay, we have our first African-American uh, female Supreme Court because of young people, right? We have the first progress in, in a bipartisan way on, on gun safety legislation in two generations because of young people in, in, in you know, historic investments in climate, decriminalizing marijuana because young people turned out. I think if the campaign stays in that lane, puts this into kind of historical perspective, then I think age, while certainly not going to help, will be less of a burden. Interesting. Interesting. And I, it's something that I know a lot of my Democratic friends are like, why can't we just get Gavin? Why can't we have somebody younger? It'll be just like Obama. And I I often have to disagree with that because Obama was sui generis, not just at his age, because we'd had young candidates before. He was sui generis for a whole bunch of other reasons, including extraordinary political skill at a level that we have almost never seen in, in our lifetimes. Um, so with one last, one last big question here for the day, 
and I'll, then I'll let you go and we can re- you can return to the uh, return to the Juneteenth holiday today. Um, <clears throat> there are a number of what I think are kind of concerning signs in my mind on in in the Gen Z window. Uh, it seems to be a, while it is a much more progressive generation, there also seems to be a kind of a hot and maybe maybe growing. I haven't decided yet core of like younger disaffected men in this sort of alt-right space, this sort of white nationalist space, that seems to be something that, uh, it's certainly something I'm keeping an eye on. I wanted to get your feelings on 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 where that's going, what it's coming from. I mean, we, that's a, probably a whole nother show of disaffected yeah. young men. But I think they are, they are a potential sort of fly in the ointment of this Gen Z story uh, if we don't keep an eye on that. I share that concern. There's a chapter dedicated in, in, in the in the book to this group. You know, I think the the youngest I profiled a couple of them. The youngest, um, and, and according to uh, a judge, the most violent or the most dangerous um, January 6th defendant, you know, was a Gen Zer who grew up, um, you know, in a multi million dollar compound in outside of Atlanta, Georgia, Bruno Kua. Another name, right? You got Thomas. You got Thomas Rousseau. Um, who who is uh, considered to be the most prolific spreader of of white nationalism um, from Patriot Front, a group yep. again that you're likely to know the name of as well. So yep. um, listen, um, I'm particularly concerned for a couple of different reasons. One of which is when two thirds of a generation, Rick, right, feel progressive uh, and empathetic around these social issues, that leads one third out. Okay, mm-hmm. of that one third, roughly half of that one third, that fifteen percent or so, I think you know, show signs of of um, an ideology that um, could could lead to potential kind of dangerous directions. They seem disaffected. They they seem depressed. Right? They are. Kind it's of not even not they're conservative. They're they're radical in right. this. They're they're not. That they are white nationalists is what they are, right? And that they're yeah. not having an opportunity to kind of fit in. And they, they, they spend so much time online, right? You, a lot of people don't understand these communities, you know, um, where they're gaming and spend time online. We saw that with Jack Teixeira kind of down the yep. street from where I am at Cape Cod, right? Um, and they're basically kind of fodder for, for groups to kind of try to give them a sense of community, a sense of strength. Um, and then it leads to very, very dark and dangerous places. It's something I think that, that um, we need to take far more seriously because there's a direct correlation between that and all the mental health concerns that we had. And it used to be back in the open, you know, where people would be recruited into these kind of gangs right. um, and other things. And now it's, you know, um, in places that most of us will, will, will never, will never see. Right. People, people don't understand the terrain of Twitch and discord and telegram and rumble and all these other places that have become. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you you go into that rabbit hole and you're just shocked not only by how virulent it is, but how huge it is. Yeah, how it, it, widespread it is. There, there. I just saw, I just saw a, a thing over the, over the last week. There, there are more young people on Twitch, more young people generally, not even young men mm-hmm. on Twitch than Apple TV. Than Apple TV. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right? And most people, most people, you know, most a lot of political people I know haven't even really heard of it or engage on it, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a significant um, it's a significant issue that needs to that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Well, and by John, the way, and the other thing, Rick, yeah. is, sorry, just the other, the, yeah. this group takes takes their their choices of finding independent media. Right. As a badge of as a badge of honor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that's what that's that's the other aspect of this, too. Not only, not only Twitch, but 
you know, the, 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 the Joe Rogans and the Petersons and the other people, Barstool yeah. Sports, who are beginning to feed not just, you know, who are, who are beginning to feed kind of these, this, this misinformation, disinformation. Um, and it's something that people, you know, take pride in, in terms of finding their own independent media that's different than the rest of their generation or their parents. Right, right, right. And this, and the same younger generation that, that, um, is wildly empathetic is also watching Andrew Tate at scale, you know, and, exactly. and a lot of these crazy things. Well, listen, John, I so much appreciate you coming on the enemies list today. It's been a great, great discussion. We could go on forever. Tell us where people can find you on social media. Well, um, on Twitter, Instagram at Della Volpe on Substack, I have a new Substack. It's JDV on Gen Z. So I'm posting a lot of uh, our data and my insights on there as well. Terrific. Terrific. Well, John, thank you once again for joining us today. And uh, we will talk to you again very soon, I hope. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Rick. You know, today's enemies list is easy. It's Hunter Biden. Oh, oh, wait, actually, I'm sorry. It's actually not Hunter Biden. It's the people who have decided that the Biden DOJ is so weaponized and so evil and so in control of Donald Trump's destiny that they've managed to manipulate the FBI, the DOJ, the IRS, the Department of Agriculture, who knows else, to hurt Trump. Well, today they're all squealing that the Department of Justice is giving Hunter Biden a light sentence because he's pleading to a gun felony and two tax misdemeanor charges. Look, the guy's had a rough life. He's had a troubled life. He's had addiction problems. Anybody who doesn't know somebody who's had addiction problems doesn't know what they're talking about when they don't understand how rough it can be. But the thing I find fascinating is these Republicans, particularly in the House, the Jim Jordan types, who have spent today just with their hair on fire. Oh, how dare they convict him of crimes when he should be, what, put to death? What are you talking about? You know what? The Trump kids were the ones who were banned from running a charity because they stole money from cancer patients. These people who are complaining about the Hunter Biden sentence, really, honestly, folks, the guy paid what he owed. He's paying a penalty for it. He's taking a criminal record in a plea deal. And here's the weird thing. America's system of justice is also about justice, not just about what you think is going to look great on Fox News or on your email blast saying, Hunter Biden went free when he should have gone to Gitmo for four million years because of his laptop. You're all full of shit. You're all on the enemies list. Get your shit together. This has been the enemies list. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious. And more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com enemies. 
And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. <laughs>